and welcome to What Memory, the podcast for survivors of stroke and brain injury. I'm Stephen Masters and I'm here with Josh Reed. We both had strokes. We want to share our experiences, find out how other people live with brain injury and investigate what's new in brain injury research. This is episode two, the memory episode. Memory loss is one of the most common and distressing features of stroke and brain injury. Josh and I both experience it on a daily basis. They don't call this podcast series What Memory for nothing. To help us find out more about memory, we enlisted the help of Dr. Scott Ferguson, clinical psychologist and neuropsychology lead for Bedfordshire Neurotherapy Service here in the UK. All three of us are on Zoom because we're still socially distancing, hence the sound quality. I thought we'd start off by um, just working out exactly what um, memory actually is. I mean, are there different kinds of memory? What do you know about memory? How do you work out how many different types of memory there are? Do you categorise all these memories? Uh, memories, it's a really interesting and very complex um, area. I think there's, there's a number of, of categorizations for different types of memory based on past models of memory. Um, uh, and they can be quite complex or, or simplified. I think it's helpful really to, to, to make a distinction between, um, first of all, is people often think there's a, a short-term memory and a long-term memory. We often tend to get caught up on this idea of short-term memory being memory for the last few hours or the memory for the last few days. Uh, and, and people use that reference in day-to-day life to say, oh, my short-term memory is not too great because I can't remember what I did yesterday. And, yeah. and, and unfortunately, it's a little bit of a, um, a misunderstanding because we have what is called a working memory, which is commonly confused with short-term memory. So working memory is our memory for 10 to 15 seconds. It's, it's very much a, uh, what we hear uh, what we see that is placed onto a, uh, either a, an audio loop that then gets rehearsed and passed into our longest term store, or it gets put down onto what is known as a, a visual sketch pad, or, which is almost a, a representation of what we see. Yeah. And again, that then gets transferred into our longer term store. So we, we actually have a, a short term memory. It's very, very, very short. Yeah. Um, a very short period of time, and everything beyond that is long-term memory. But the thing with long-term memories is it's it's also very interesting that you have a long-term memory gets stronger with time and gets stronger with rehearsal. And I think yeah. a, a nice way of thinking about this is is that if you walk down a a short-term or working memory is if you're walking across a field and you make the start of a path, your working memory would see the grass, would see the trees, would see the direction you're going, uh, would hear the birds, and that's a very short-term um, experience. Right, now, if, right. we, if we're looking at a long-term memory, it is the process of walking down that same path over and over, over time, and the path becomes more defined. It becomes something that we are um, we are embedding. So memories become stronger and embedded with time. So, uh, yeah, my short-term memory was uh, really bad as well. So I really struggled to remember to message back on text, on WhatsApp, uh, on calls. And so initially, I, um, if I didn't reply straight away, 
I would forget. And it might be like a week later that I looked at my phone and I was like, oh, I've, I've got a message that I've missed. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Um, now it's, it's improving. It is improving. And I have sort of methods to sort of help me. So either message back instantly or I send a sort of like a reminder to be like, oh, okay, well, I'm going to uh, have like cook now. So I won't reply straight away. I will uh, reply in a bit. Uh, You're sort of managing your short term memory problems, basically, aren't you? Yes. Yeah, exactly. I am like managing that uh, hopefully well enough to almost be better but like uh not quite there but almost there <laughs> so yeah um and then um so it was weird again with my long-term memory as well i remember specifically being like when i woke up from the coma i didn't realize i was covered in tattoos and i was like <laughs> what um and you know so i have tattoos on my arms uh on my stomach on my legs um and I could see those and I was like, okay, oh yeah, no, I can remember these a bit. Um, so I was looking at them and I completely, for almost a year, a year and a half, I forgot that I had back tattoos. Um, <laughs> I, I love it. completely lost the fact that I'd had back tattoos and I was like, what? And then I was like, oh yeah, I do vaguely remember that. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's, it's very, very weird to lose that well, first short-term memory and also some long-term memory as well. God, yeah. My big one is that I I knew places, like places I've been to, but I didn't know how to, know how to get there. So, um, yeah, so even when I started driving again, I was thinking, hmm, I know, I know where that person's house is, but I cannot for the life of me remember how I'm going to get there. And so I had to give up driving because I just, you know, <clears throat> I would go off and I'd think, <clears throat> where am I? I haven't got a clue. <laughs> so when I came out of hospital, I had a go at trying to make a cup of coffee. And I ended up, all the bits in front of me, the kettle, the cup, the coffee, the spoon and everything, and I ended up putting the coffee straight into the kettle and ended up tipping the milk down the sink. Now, which bit of my memory was not working as I was trying to organise all of that? Wait, that's, that's likely to be a, com a combination of, of our memory, a memory for what you do, what objects are, what their use is, and then how that gets brought into the organising of tasks and how we work through them. So the memory for the the milk and the memory for the coffee, the memory for what a kettle is, what a fridge is, that that comes from the memory store. Yeah. But that has to be brought into the front part of our brain, the prefrontal cortex, yeah. and has to be organized into a sequence of events or sequence of tasks. And what is likely to have happened there is it wasn't so much your memory that may have been the main confusion issue, but it may have been that it was the uh, uh, and organizing the sequence of steps and the sequence got confused sometimes it could be a combination that the sequence gets confused and then the memory of what the object is gets confused okay. so this is where it gets quite complex all of our memory how we store it and how we retrieve it and how we use it is an interplay between what happens 
right right to behind in our you know behind the eyes almost which is the prefrontal um, cortex and and is a really important part of the brain and then the deeper structures tucked in within our ears which is the hippocampus and the limbic system of of a connection and communication between the two so when i did that thing with the coffee i was just it was just a state of confusion then i hadn't actually forgotten what all these things were because much later i did remember how to make a cup of coffee so was that just communication between it was a communication between and that is what often falls down is that if we're we're struggling to create memories then the new is we're not we're not able to pass that information from our senses to our, the front of our brain and into our memory stores. Okay. The communication is being affected. Or when we're trying to put it out, that communication is being affected. That information is not coming through for us then to be able to use it. Which is why yeah. people often say, I thought I'd forgotten this, but then something happened. And I realized I could remember the name of a work colleague or a classmate from 30 years ago. But I couldn't access that six months ago after my brain injury or stroke. And that's because the communication was struggling. Okay. So that's the thing. It's like, so when I was first unable to talk and in hospital, I was like, I knew what I wanted to say. But as soon as I tried to uh, slip it out and speak, I forgot what I was trying to say. And I was like, oh, there seems to be a gap, which is minuscule. It's on my tongue. But it's miles and miles long. It could could be have been like could have been <laughs> further away than the moon. Um, so yeah, so that's sort of like that. And, and Josh, it's interesting because the it is this we get caught up on this idea that memory is located in a part of the brain, and actually memory is not located in a specific part. Oh. Memory is, is is the is it, it has a centre that is a little bit more. Um, active when we're using memory that is often the hippocampus Um, but actually the memory is the it's the connections between the hippocampus for example and the language area the Broca's area or it's the connection between the 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 hippocampus or the the, and the frontal cortex when we're trying to do something or it's the connections with the visual cortex which is located at the back of the head Um, so it's the connections with so what you're saying is that we don't actually have a memory bank as such this is the part that it gets really complicated because the, the, the the there's the suggestion that there are parts of the brain that are more heavily involved in memory, right. but are not solely responsible for holding that information. That memories are are created and held within within the memory net within the neural networks. So it's fascinating that a network or a a connection becomes stronger. It um, becomes more potentiated over time. And it's that strength of the connection that allows us to have a stronger memory. Similarly, if you get older or have a progressive decline, that network, those neurons, they become weaker. They start to decline. And therefore, the memories decline because that communication is weaker. So, example so it's being, not like a hard drive in a computer with a kind of bank of memories filed away in categories, all carefully labelled. Yeah, and then you just it, go back and retrieve them. This is a kind of a so more simple, of an active so. thing. No. <laughs> it's, an, it's a fluid, active process whereby it's, it's, oh, yeah. it's billions of connections 
Uh, and that's what's really fascinating because we're often told and we tell people, I mean, psychologists have done it for years, let's yes. think of it as a computer because it's simplified. Um, I mean, if we started to talk to you, Josh and Stephen, about, I mean, your memory difficulties in the early days, when you have memory difficulties, and we went into that level of detail, how would you respond? Mm, yeah, yeah. I can see that would be a hugely neurological kind of survey of what was going on in my brain would confuse the hell out of me, wouldn't it? So you, <laughs> so what you're saying basically, Scott, as far as I understand, you simplify it for people after they've had a stroke or a brain injury, just because if you told them the actual way it really was, it would just be too complicated. And, and, and to be honest, I haven't got a history of understanding how the brain works anyway. You know, I never thought about it until I had the, until I had a stroke and I could realise that things could go wrong. So, um, there's, there's some, there is some simple ways of understanding memory and it is that we have to, to recognise, so we have to encode memory, so we tend to something, we encode it, we consolidate it, we store it, we then retrieve it. Um, yes. We also can have, to simplify, we can have visual memory, we can have verbal or audio memory, things that we see, things right. that we hear, and we can have this thing called explicit memory, which is when we're consciously trying to store something, and then we have this beautiful thing called implicit memory, yeah. which is something that we learn through procedure or repeating. We Ooh. do so out of awareness. So we learn to ride a bike implicitly, and remember how to do that implicitly. But when we're trying to learn somebody's name, we'll do that consciously and explicitly. So memory is this beautiful oh, way right, okay. of learning when we're aware and learning things through repetition that become just automatic. Yes, that, that, yeah. Because that's the thing. It's like, so I, I now can't ride a bike. I can't drive um, at all because... One, I have eyesight issues, but mainly because I'm like, I can remember some things, um, but I can't physically do them consciously all the time. It's just too much brain energy and brain power. I can do it for a short burst, um, but I can't do it repeatedly over and over again for hours and hours because I'm having to relearn it every single time. So you're starting from scratch, basically, aren't you? Every time you're starting from scratch, trying to remember. Yeah. And this, this brings me on to something which really intrigues me, is the brain memory before I had the stroke and the brain memory after I've had the stroke. So in the beginning, I remember an incident in the, on the ward when uh, there was this girl on the ward and she was talking to me and looking me in the eye and holding my hand and then she said you know, dad are you feeling okay and I'm thinking dad what was she saying to me you know is she my daughter who is this person and um and I, I, I that's the first time I really really panicked after I'd had a stroke was when I this girl told me that basically she was my daughter and I didn't remember the baby. I didn't remember the toddler, the teenager. And she was in her early 20s, obviously, and she had long, dark hair. And I thought, hmm, hmm, this is interesting. This is a complete stranger. And then it clicked that she was my daughter and that all of those memories came flooding back okay. But I can't access anything before I had the stroke in terms of memory unless I'm prompted to. So if somebody says, oh, you, do you remember that holiday in Whitby? And I'll say, no. But if you show me the pictures and we talk about what we did and we go through it, every, you know, the days and everything like that, then it'll slowly come back. And in a couple of days, I'll say, 
I remember that. I remember that holiday now. But if, without that, like I don't get found, it. It's like you find the key. Yes. So yeah. you, you can see that the, 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 the doors are there. The doors are locked. You're hoping that it's in behind, but you've not got that key. But then you happen to have the key. You open the door, and then off you go, and it's it's started. You yes. can then access those things. Or, or it's a spider's web, and you touch the side of the spider's web, and then the rest of the web starts to light up. Yes. So, but but the difficulty in finding that that initial contact to start access to memory um, is is something that lots of people report to have difficulty with, and that right. would fit with this idea of memory being within networks. It's not, yes. uh, uh, you know, a particular uh, cup. It's not a particular cup within your brain. Yes. Wow. Oh. So, a quick question then: Does does the brain actually? know that it's lost its memory is it aware that there is a problem going on there and is it trying to recover the memory it's because as my memory gets better just on simple things like making a cup of coffee and recognizing people um is my brain aware that it's been damaged and it's thinking oh we've got to get all these memories back again if we can and he's got to learn how to drive a car again and stuff is it, it's almost like you're asking if it's um, if is it doing a system reboot after the computer's crash. Actually, that is what uh, I'm asking you, essentially. Yes. Is it doing a system reboot I, automatically without me telling it? And it's desperately uh, trying to get itself back together again. I don't know, Josh. What do you think? What, what do you think about What's your experience being of that? Well, um, so, I mean, for me, it's been... Sorry, I'm trying to remember what the question was. <laughs> that is a classic example of memory loss. You've just demonstrated it, Josh. There you go. Can't remember a question from 30 seconds ago. There we go. Well, yeah, yeah. well welcome to our world. <laughs> if you had, um, it's a, so the question it sounded like was, is the brain aware that it's had memory loss? Yes. Now, I, I suppose maybe, Josh, I, I can answer it in the first instance. I, I think it's a very difficult question to answer. Uh, from a theoretical perspective, like the, the brain is really interesting because the brain will want to find an answer. So the brain is clearly trying to 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 to, to run sense. through its processes to make sense of the world. So it's firing, you know, firing off neurons and communicating all of the time. Whether it's getting the information it needs back, maybe something different. And I think right. in the early days after stroke or brain injury, it's probably not, and that causes a problem. And then it starts to get better messages coming back with time, and that's why we yeah. see improvement. Whether the brain's aware of of doing that, of sort of checking its own systems out, yes. I, I'm not sure. And I think sometimes the brain is, because it's in a state of confusion, it's it's actually filling in gaps that may be inaccurate. So lots of people have false memory. Lots of people yes. have this, this idea of fit, putting things in there that seems to fit the story, but it actually wasn't true, but it feels yes. true. And that's the brain trying to make sense of the experience that, that you're having. Um, well, that's, but actually, that's it's trying to, it's trying to grab at, yeah, it's trying to grab at information to make sense of it. And it, it's, it, that's quite confusing as well for some people that they report because they yeah. think it's true, but it's then later that it's not. Yeah. Wow. Well, no, so I, um, when I had my brain scan, my whole, the whole back of my brain was completely shot. I'd lost about half of it, half the brain cells that were in it. But now I can do lots of the stuff that I used to be able to do. 
and it must have moved or I must have relearned it. I must have, it must have moved from this part of my brain, the back part of my brain to a slightly front part, like front, more front part because I wouldn't be able to do everything that I now do. It has, must have, I must have to have had to relearn stuff. Yeah. So, it's, so this, yeah, this, that idea, Josh, is really interesting because I, I well, you've spoken before about the, um, the, 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 the cell death within your visual cortex, which is why you, yes. you know, there's some challenges that you have with vision uh, and perception, is that, that the, the cell death is there, the cells have died and they will not return. And that's what happens because that surrounding the cell death, there will also be cells that have been damaged, but perhaps not fully died. So they've compromised. They've not. They can still function to a degree, but just not as efficiently. Yeah. Um, and and also this beautiful idea of of neuroplasticity and an ability for the brain to find a way of completing yeah. the same action, even if that part of the brain is is then damaged. You often find it can't complete it quite as efficiently or as effectively. Or it takes but it is incredible. More, more effort, more like I'm too tired or like if I really concentrate, it takes me really long and I'm after sort of like at 8.30, I'm like, right, I'm done for the day. Um, whereas I would have been up till two normally. <laughs> yeah. So maybe the question, Stephen, about whether the brain's aware, maybe the brain is not consciously aware, but it's just trying to complete the, the actions and the processes, the communication that it would normally do. So in trying to do right. it, it's trying to find a way, any way it can to still do it. I do wonder if that causes a lot of, or has a big impact on the fatigue levels. Because if you think if the brain is having to work very hard to complete the actions that would typically be quite automatic, yes, that's, that's very tiring. Oh yeah, definitely. Absolutely. So basically, memory retrieval and fatigue go hand in hand, don't they? Because I had a massive amount of fatigue, and I still have. Um, but that is to do with, I think, the amount of thinking I do, especially going back into my past. Every time I try and access that part of um, memory in terms of what I've done in my pre-stroke, pre and that's what, 65 years worth of memories, um, that, that's the thing that really fatigues me the most. If, if you think of it, Stephen, as if you, uh, somebody uh, mentioned this analogy, which I, I really quite like, so I'm going to steal it. Um, it's, not my, it's not mine. Uh, but the idea of the tube, the tube map in London, and if you imagine that a number of tube stations have been closed, and the challenge that you have then to get from point A to B, so you're trying to get from King's Cross to um, Vauxhall, for example, but yeah. one of those main lines has been disrupted or has stopped working, and yeah. you've still got to find your way there. But that's going to take you longer, and it's going yeah. to take more energy because you can't go the route you want to go. You have to find an alternative route. And the challenge being with a stroke or brain injury is you might have one route that has been affected, but you also yeah. might have multiple routes that have well, been affected. Yeah, okay. So that makes all of those actions more tiring and, yeah. and take longer. Uh, therefore, yes, if, and if memory is something you find difficult, then everything related to memory is going to be more tiring. And yeah. it's pretty fundamental to our day, isn't it? Absolutely. <laughs> so if we could move on, um, we, we take a little break now. Um, 
like you were suggesting, uh, Josh, we'll, we'll call that a end of topic. Um, so uh, what we get from this, I think, is quite fascinating for me and quite informative. Yeah, Lots of things I didn't know about um, how the how the memory works at a very kind of basic level. Which yes, I, yeah, exactly. So I think he came up with some amazing things, really. So in the What Memory Survivor's Guide to Memory which I think is yeah. what we should yeah. try to push, is um, yeah. it's not really like a computer, is it, memory? No, it's, no, it's, it's how we think of it or how we've been thought, told to think about it for the longest time is it's like a computer. But yeah. we've heard from an actual psychologist that it's more fluid than that. Yes. So it's more the connectivity between different parts of the brain rather than a single place in the brain. So I think that's an important thing to really sort of understand, really. And then because of the brain injury causes that communication thing to, sh to shut down. And then yes. the brain is desperately trying to get back that right. connectivity. And I think yeah, that's definitely. how, and that is really quite different to the way I used to think about memory. I always thought it was yeah. a kind of computer and it was a hard drive and then my hard drive went bust, but that's not the case. Yes, that's so, definitely not the case. No. Um, and I mean, there's still some, it, they, you could have memory issues themselves, but it's those connectivities, those connections between the making a cup of coffee, the throwing the tea bag into yeah. the sink and putting the milk in the water in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's it. So, yeah, it's, it's definitely making more sense that you didn't have memory loss in that uh, that case it was more you had all this all the right memories but none of the right connections <laughs> yes exactly right so i think the more we exercise memory rather like a muscle yeah. the more we oh, yeah. exercise that connectivity the better off we're going to yep. be with memory so that's what i got oh, from today so i think that's some quite amazing really we're going to be talking more about memory in the next podcast. In the meantime, if you're trying to cope with memory loss as a result of brain injury, we'd love to hear from you. Email us on whatmemory2 at hotmail.com. That's W-H-A-T-M-E-M-O-R-Y, followed by the numeral 2 at hotmail.com. We'll forgo all the jokes about people with memory loss issues trying to remember our email address because, obviously, too easy. Thanks to Dr. Scott Ferguson for taking part in this podcast. And thanks to Faye and Emily at Headway in Bedford for all their support and encouragement with this podcast project. Plus the composer is Naj Dewey for letting us use her music track Rolling Globe 2 from her album Euplexia. You can find more of her work on Bandcamp. Finally, thanks to our sound editor, Jamie Rutherford, who is a professional audio producer and fellow brain injury survivor. What Memory is our personal podcast. Any views expressed appear to our own or personal views of our guests. We are not expressing the views of any organisation or business. Okay, we're done. The only thing we know for sure after brain injury is that the future is unknown and daunting. But it's only going to be brighter if we plan for it to be that way. Bye for now. <laughs>